Hi, I'm Taylor. I'm Kat. And welcome to Square Mile of Murder. This week we have a mystery of five missing children and a family's quest to find the truth that so far spanned three generations and 74 years. That's a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah, so today we are talking about the mysterious disappearance of five of the Sodder children during a fire at their family home in Fayetteville, West Virginia on Christmas Eve. 1945. So we begin our story with George Sauter, who was born Giorgio Sadu, maybe, in Sardinia, Italy in 1895. He immigrated to the United States at the age of 13 with an older brother, but his brother returned to Italy pretty much immediately after the pair had cleared customs at Ellis Island. Um, Giorgio then changed his name to George Sauter and he never really made it public why he left Italy. And I know that was a time of like mass migration to the United States from Europe, but that's still slightly fishy. Yeah, it's just a bit, the whole like brother vamoosing out of there immediately after his yeah, young sibling is landed on the shores of yeah. New York is a bit strange to me. Yeah, but. he's there and he's like 13 years old and yeah, the brother's just like, see ya. <laughs> Bye, bro. See you never. <laughs> George found work on the railroads in Pennsylvania where he would carry water and other supplies to workers. Um, after a few years, he took on more permanent work in Smithers, West Virginia as a driver And eventually he started his own trucking company hauling dirt to construction sites and later hauling coal that was mined in the area. In West Virginia, he met Jenny Cipriani. 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 Yep, that's what we're going with. Who was the daughter of a local shopkeeper. Her family had also migrated from Italy when she was, I believe, three years old. Uh, The couple got married, settled down in the town of Fayetteville, West Virginia. Um... Fayetteville had a large population of Italian immigrants and not really much else. (laughs) It's got a couple of other accolades. We'll get to that. Um, George's uh, trucking business prospered and they became, quote, one of the most respected middle class families around, in the words of one local official. That's always nice. Yeah. Um, So... Speaking of Fayetteville, uh, it's been listed as one of the coolest small towns in the USA, uh, as well as one of the best river towns in the US as well, which is interesting because there are a lot of river towns in the US. So does river town literally just mean a town on a river? Well, that's what I would assume it means. That's how I'm reading it. But maybe it's a specific thing. Most settlements bring up around water. Yep. Because you need water. (laughs) Yeah. Especially on the sort of east coast. I mean, West Virginia is a little more inland, but... Yeah. It's... Yeah, but when you look at USA, it's it's on the west... uh, On the eastern side, even if it's not right on the coastline. Yeah, no. It's It's not quite Midwest. (laughs) No. It's definitely more east... But it is west of Virginia. 
Really? It's a little bit west, at least. Oh my god, it makes so much sense. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah so in, in 1922, uh, George and Jenny had the first of their ten children. Okay, ten just seems excessive. Like, are they actually sending them down the mines to mine the coal for the dad to sell in his business? Because otherwise, what is the point of having 10 children? And I know contraception wasn't a thing in the 1920s. And they're Italian immigrants, so they're quite possibly Catholic. But have they never heard of the rhythm method? I mean, maybe not. Seriously. It seems like we keep coming across these cases with tons and tons of children in them i just but imagine giving birth to 10 children no i don't want to imagine that at all well me neither but you know just just no it must just be like a slip and slide and just shooting straight out of there by that point at least at least the labor would get easier yeah no i i I mean unless you want to like yeah, start your own baseball team or... Well, how many plays do you have on a baseball team? <laughs> Catcher, pitcher, first base, second base, third base, shortstop, and four outfielders, so nine. One extra hitter. Okay. I mean, ten dogs, ten cats. You'd have ten fucking horses. And it would still seem less excessive than 10. No, 10 children is just too many. Well, it's too many. But here were their names. Okay. So we have. uh, And these, so we're going to give you their names and their ages on the day of the fire in 1945. So we have Joe, who's 23. John, 22. Marion, 17. George Jr., 16, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, uh, Louis, 9, Jenny Jr., which is my favorite, (laughs) Uh, she was 8, Betty, 5, and Sylvia was 2. And with the exception of the eldest, Joe, who was stationed in Europe with the army, the children were all in the house when the fire started. Okay, do you know what I just noticed, right? The third boy and the third girl are both named after their parents. Yeah. I didn't notice that when I was looking it up. I just love Jenny Jr. Jenny Jr. Sodder. Jenny Sodder Jr.? Oh, I don't know. JJ? Jenny Cipriani Sodder Jr.? Sodder Jr.? (laughs) I think we were overthinking this. <laughs> well, I, I just love, I've always said that, like, I think more women should name their children juniors of yeah, themselves. definitely. Because I just think, like... There's so many men do it, and I'm like, why? And, like, I don't know. I think it'd be pretty badass to have, like, a little a little girl running around the, the playground with, with the name Junior. Or, like, Jenny the Third. Yeah. Trey, I, I I went to high school with a kid who, whose name was Trey, but I never. It, it took me four years or something to for someone to finally say, you know, that his name is Trey because he's the third of his name in his family. I was like, oh, 
makes so much more sense now. So what was his actual name? I actually don't know. It was like, <laughs> I don't know, so, so, something very prep school in New England, but... Um, okay, I'll take your word for it. Yeah, no yeah. some of us were just like working class northeast England, so you know, didn't have names like that. I mean, at least I don't think I went to school with anyone named Chip. That's like the true New England uh, yuppie, yuppie name. Chip. A chip is something you put salt and vinegar on, and then you eat it. Mm, chips. I'm hungry. Well, there's that Chinese place a few doors down. No, that's a drug front. I'm sorry. They're never open. They're open on a night. They are, but only some nights and only really late at night. They're open when I leave on a night. I still think it's a drug front. Now, and then the Italian restaurant on the corner is definitely run by the Armenian mob. um, Legitimately. So... Maybe we should edit this bit out. (laughs) (laughs) You know. So, Christmas Eve 1945 was pretty normal for the Sada family. Jenny had been at home preparing for Christmas with the younger children. George and the two eldest sons who were still living at home, uh, John and George Jr., had been working at the family's coal trucking business. Their eldest daughter, Marion, had been at her job at the local dime store in Fayetteville. And after she returned home, the family celebrated and had their Christmas dinner. So this is actually quite common in mainland Europe for families to celebrate with Christmas dinner on Christmas Eve, not Christmas Day. Yeah, so Marion had given her young siblings new toys after Christmas dinner. And in their excitement, the youngest daughter children begged their mother to stay up late to play with them. Um... And so, with the exception of Sylvia, who was only two years old, uh, the children were allowed to stay up until Marion went to bed. The two elder brothers, John and George Jr., had already gone to bed. Um, George and Jenny went to bed at around 10 p.m., with Sylvia sleeping in a crib in their bedroom, uh, leaving the eldest children to put the younger ones to bed. About half past midnight, Jenny was woken by the phone ringing and went to answer it. And she would later recall that she didn't recognize the voice of the woman on the other end and that the woman asked for a name that Jenny didn't didn't recognize and then laughed like maniacally when Jenny told her she had the wrong wrong number. So Jenny just hung up. It's so creepy. Yeah. I mean, you get someone like cackling down the phone at half past midnight asking for people you don't know. On Christmas. Yeah. And also, it's 1945, so it's not like... You don't have caller ID or... Well, and, like, you know, using the phone is a pretty, like, purposeful activity back then. So, I don't know. It's just weird. I don't like it. Something about this case I find really quite creepy. So it's, yeah, I mean it, it's weird from the outset. It's only gonna get worse. <laughs> um, yeah, you might want to check out now if you're feeling yeah, freaked out. Like I'm just, Taylor. I'm just gonna go, and uh, you guys can continue on. <laughs> um, right. So as she hung up the phone, Jenny noticed that the lights hadn't been switched off and the curtains hadn't been drawn, um, which were two things that the children normally did when they stayed up later than their parents. Um, Jenny also noticed that Marion had fallen asleep on the living room couch, so she assumed the other children, not wanting to wake Marion, had 
just gone back up to the attic where they slept. So she closed the curtains, turned out the lights, and went back to bed. I mean, apart from the phone call, that's not really... No, that's that the pretty ordinary, normal. Yeah. You know, and I suppose when... I've always said 10 children is excessive. When you have that many children, the older ones do start to look after the younger ones. Yeah, so, totally. You know, you can go to bed early when you've cooked Christmas dinner for 12 people. Good God, yeah. You know, or you've been like hauling coal all day and leave, you know, the elder children to do what else needs doing. So. Yeah, especially if they're like, you know, in their late teens and stuff. Yeah. So... Uh, about half an hour after Jenny had gone back to bed, she was again awakened by a random noise. And this time it was the sound of an object hitting the house's roof with a loud bang and then a rolling noise. Um, but after hearing nothing more, she just went back to sleep. And it was another half an hour or so before she was woke up again. But this time it was smelling smoke. <sighs> I don't like this case. <laughs> um, Jenny woke up her husband and the couple managed to escape with baby Sylvia, um, 17-year-old Marion, who'd been sleeping in the living room, 22-year-old John, and 16-year-old George Jr., who were sleeping in their bedroom on the same floor as their parents. The five other children were sleeping in the attic room and the parents tried to get to the children but the staircase was already consumed by fire and they couldn't get up there. The family had hope, though. So George always kept a ladder propped up against the side of the house, which maybe don't keep it always propped up because you might get a big gust of wind and it's going to, like, break, like, glass or something. I'd be more worried about burglars, quite honestly, but maybe that's just me. So, thinking his ladder would be where he left it. Uh, you know, George ran around to the side of the house, thinking, right, ladder, get to the attic window, break the window, kids get down. Sure. Simple. But the ladder was gone. Hmm. Mysteriously. Very mysteriously. Hmm. Uh, I don't trust it. <laughs> that ladder just got up and walked away all on its own. Yep. Can't trust him. It's got two legs and it's on a mission. <laughs> I, I've got images of like a cartoon ladder just walking down the street on a mission. Like, no, it was more kind of it being on a mission, you know, like power walking. Ladder time. We do not have the rights for that. <laughs> yes, we do. I just made it up. <laughs> We, in fact, have the sole rights to that. If everyone, anyone wants to use it, you got to pay us. <laughs> and I know everyone will obviously want to use it because it was so delightful. Obviously. Obviously. We need to get better at sticking to the script. It's not going to happen today. I can already <laughs> tell you that. It's just not going to fucking happen. Yeah, the caffeine's not working today. No. Um, right. The ladder's gone. It's gone for a walkabout. George and his sons then decided to get their trucks and move them as close to the attic window as possible and then try to scale the wall and get to the window. But when they tried to move the trucks, neither of them would start. Despite the fact that they had used them, you know, less than 12 hours earlier during the day for the coal business. 
Um, so that's weird. Uh, the family then decided to try to put the fire out themselves. And they always had numerous water barrels on the property um, because they had livestock. And when George and his sons went to get the barrels, they found they were all frozen solid. Yeah, which of this series of unfortunate events, I think that is the least suspicious one because it's the middle of winter. It's winter. It's probably cold. Yeah. So while her father and older brothers are trying to rescue the trapped children, Marina tried to phone the local fire department in Fayetteville because the phone was right near the front door and the flames and smoke hadn't got that. Well, the smoke had got that far, but the flames hadn't. So phone should have been working. But it was not because someone had cut the phone line. So the hits just keep coming. I mean, this family is just... Out of they luck. got some bad karma. They got some something going on. <laughs> so Marion ran to their neighbor's home and tried to ring from there, but they couldn't get through to the operator. So for anyone who doesn't know, back in the olden days, uh, you couldn't just dial a number and get put straight through like you do now. You had to pick up the phone, wait for it to connect to the operator. Then you would tell them who you wanted to call and they would then put you, like, connect your line to their line and it would ring. Yeah. So, which also makes the whole wrong number thing a bit suspicious. I was going to, I started to think about that when we were talking about that. But, like, if it's really a wrong number, that means that someone on the switchboard put you into the wrong hole or directed your call to the wrong place. Yeah, but that true. seems way less likely than someone being like hey call up the solder farmhouse and then just being a total weird dickhead on the phone yeah. at like midnight and <laughs> christmas eve so i don't know yeah. i think mean, i mean they could be drunk dialing <laughs> like hey operator put us through to hmm let's have a look through the phone book ah this sort of family <laughs> i don't know it's just weird yeah it's all weird Marion ran to another neighbor, but faced the same problem. So uh, as their other neighbors realized what was happening, they began to try and help the family. Um, Some went to try to rescue the trapped children. Others took turns uh, trying to phone up the fire department. And one eventually drove to the fire chief's house, which was only a couple of miles away, and woke him up. Uh... But even then, nothing was done to help the family. Yeah, and it was actually later discovered that uh, a passing trucker had seen the flames and pulled into like the nearest tavern and locals who were drinking there uh, tried to contact the fire department, individual members of the fire department as well. So they're not it's not like they're just trying to ring one person because it's a small community. Everyone knows each other and literally nobody can get through. Yeah, so eventually they did manage to contact the fire department, but, you know, they've already had someone go out and drive to the fire chief's house and that's not done anything, so it's just the start of a very delayed response. Yes, that's not great. Um, Eventually, the fire chief, F.J. Morris, began a phone tree and 
God, who who doesn't love a phone tree? I uh, I was reading that and I was like, I have not heard the phrase phone tree for like 15 years. Years and years. Yeah. I think it was probably like a thing when you were on a school trip. Yeah. And different people's parents volunteered to be on the phone tree and they had like five people to ring if if something happened. Something and, horrible. You know, and that was probably the last time I heard the phrase phone tree. Yeah, like who everyone loves a phone tree from fire chiefs to suburban moms. Yep. Can't can't get enough. So good old FJ Morris uh hopped on his his telephone and he called one member of the fire service who then called the next and then they called the next one and so on and so forth. Um, but this, you know, response to all these calls was further slowed down by the fact that none of the firefighters were, um, in any sort of shape to drive because it was Christmas. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't find it like actually written down because they were all too drunk, but I think but that kind can be of in, inferred. Yeah, you know, it's Christmas Eve. Nobody, nobody wants to be working Christmas Eve. Oh, we'll get drunk. That's a good way to get out of it. Yeah. Um, so with no help from the fire service and still no way to get access to the attic or to uh, dampen the flames, the distraught sodders and their neighbors had no choice but to watch the home burn to ash with the five children still inside. So it was not until 8 a.m. the next morning, Christmas Day, that the fire brigade would eventually turn up, by which time the house was just a pile of ash. And everyone assumed that the children had perished in the fire, because what else were they to assume at that point? Yeah, fair enough. Um, I mean, they're probably, they're volunteer firefighters though, right? Yeah, because, I mean, this is not long after 45 yeah yeah. so this is just months after the end of the second world war as well so and like we said mostly volunteer firefighters but even then more than six hours nearly seven hours to respond to a fire less than three miles away from the station like i could walk that in a lot fewer than six hours and on top of that, one of the volunteer firefighters was Jenny's brother, the uncle of the children trapped in the house. When the smoldering pile of ash and rubble had finally cooled, the state fire marshal combed through the remnants of the house but couldn't find any trace of the five missing children. <coughs> Don't you dare give me your coronavirus. <laughs> no, that's what I'm going to bring back with me from America. Yeah, I was at the doctor's this morning and the nurse who was do- uh, taking my blood was saying that people are not even like all- already people aren't going out as much. She was talking about how quiet it was, like there's hardly anyone on the street or anything. Yeah. It's weird. Uh, third case in Scotland reported today. Oh. I missed that. Yeah. Ah, well, you see, this is where being an introvert who doesn't really like socializing. Leave the house, yeah. This is where this is all a good thing. I know. It's great. You know as what? Long as, as long as you don't get it. Or your wife doesn't get it. We'll be and fine. Like, my one other friend doesn't get it. We'll all be fine. Yeah. And, you know, if we, if we get it, just 
we don't have to quarantine we can quarantine together yeah extra episodes friendship yeah i think that that would have worked better if if people could see the the hand motion that i did yeah we're not we need to start remembering that people can't see us when we're pulling faces at each other as well which to be fair is really good because because we're under two blankets in your living room yeah and i've got my feet up on the coffee table yeah it's like not my hair is very big today it's a whole thing anyway yeah mine's not washed so (laughs) mine's too washed apparently (laughs) um uh, the five solder children, Maurice, 14, Martha, 12, Louis, 9, good old Jenny Jr., 8, <laughs> and, and Betty, 5, were declared dead. And the following day, the coroner's inquiry concluded that the fire had been so hot that their bodies had been completely cremated, reduced entirely to ash. Um, and at this point in time... It should be pointed out the fire had lasted only like an hour. It's like forty-five minutes or an hour. Yeah. So that's and one thing maybe maybe you can shed some light as an American. Coroner's inquest the next day. No, that's no. weird. Yeah, I thought that was too, but then I was like, do you guys do things different? I know it's like nearly seventy-five years ago, but you know, is there a different standard or something? Cause, but have it the next day based on poking around in the ash for less than a day see that's the thing like i feel like okay it's you've you've just watched your house burn down with you're assuming your children are inside of it and like i I can see how you know the town officials would be like well that's what happened but yeah. it just seems a little quick, you know, to yeah. to immediately have them declared dead and then immediately conclude that they had just been reduced to nothing. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's weird. So in a commercial cremation oven for two to three hours, which is the average time for cremation of a human body, sort of anywhere from like one to three hours depending on the size of the body it's very unusual for a body to be completely and absolutely reduced to a fine ash um there's still like fragments of bone left usually yet there's no bone fragments found but there were remnants of household appliances and fixtures and fittings and in the years since the fire, experts have concluded that if the fire was hot enough to completely incinerate the bodies of five children, all these fixtures and fittings, appliances, everything should also have been incinerated. Um, and the family actually sort of came to that conclusion pretty quickly themselves. Um, but yeah, the that's not really working, you know. Yeah. So 45, you would still... Would you have plastic household appliances by then? Yeah, you'd have yeah. some early plastics and you'd have like Bakelite and stuff. Yeah. So if they're still recognizable, it's not hot enough to incinerate a body. No, exactly. And so like going back to the idea of like, wow, that's fast that they um, ran the coroner's inquest, which decided that like 
it was so just that hot that it reduced Mm. the bodies to nothing surely if you're sitting there looking also at you know the remains of your oven or whatever you shouldn't be able to make that conclusion as well there's a lot of holes in this story yeah um so the fire marshal concluded that the fire had been caused by faulty wiring but the solders disputed this uh, George Sauter had just had the house's wiring checked and tested by the power company a couple months before the fire. And the surviving family members also remembered that the Christmas lights were still on after the fire had started um, and until the flames completely engulfed the house, which they argued would not have happened if the fire had been caused by an electrical fault. I mean, that's that's reasonable. I yeah. think, you know, if it's faulty wiring and it's blown... Then it's like, blown the electrics out. Which, it sh- everything should go out. Yeah. yeah. On December 30th, death, death certificates were issued for the five Sada children. And on January 2nd, funerals were held. But the distraught parents could not bring themselves to attend. Although the surviving siblings did. But as the dust or ash began to settle... <laughs> you haven't made a pun yet. Sorry. You know. Not not on my game today. I, uh, yeah, I've noticed. I know. Yeah, what are we doing? Uh, life began to return to normal, or as near to normal as it really can when half your family's died. Like, how not you, not an easy thing to get. Yeah, you can't ever go back to normal because when you think, you know, you've got a f- apart from the fact that five of your children, five of your siblings have died, you've also got, you know. You've got the kids, the kids are starting to help in the family business and things like that. So you're never going to get back to normal in any way. Yeah, you've sort of, uh, it's blown everything up for a a lack of uh, (laughs) a a more fitting term. And you said my pun was bad. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah, so as they started to get back to normal, the family began to question the official version of events. And soon they became convinced that the children had not died in the fire and began to consider that they were kidnapped and the fire was started as a cover. Interesting. So you might think this is just, you know, the 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 last grasp of a desperate grieving family trying to cling onto any inkling of hope that their loved ones might still be alive but there's actually a lot to support the idea that the fire wasn't just from faulty wiring and that you know maybe something else happened here and maybe the children's bodies weren't reduced to nothing yeah so far we have the ladder missing uh, the truck's not starting. The electric had only just been checked and tested. The phone wouldn't connect. The electric was still working during the fire. The fire brigade took seven hours to respond, or almost seven hours, uh, despite the fact that one of the firefighters was the uncle of the children and people had actually driven to the fire chief's house to track him down. Yeah. And of course, there's absolutely not only are there no, there's no bodies, there's no 
like bone fragments or any kind of trace and we're all supposed to believe this is one big coinkydink not only you know all of that a telephone repairman examined the phone lines that um went into the solder house and and the neighbor's house and they found that they had been intentionally severed uh, previously the family had been told the lines had been burned through and that was why they'd been unable to connect but think about it it was just half an hour between this woman cackling like a maniac down the phone and the fire starting yeah so they were definitely so, working before then yeah so if they'd if they'd been severed they had to be severed in that very short period of time yeah uh, Jenny also began to experiment with burning animal carcasses and meat that she sourced from local farmers and butchers, becoming more and more convinced that had her children actually died in the fire, there would be some trace of them in the ashes and rubble. And she contacted local undertakers, crematorium staff, to see if it was actually possible to burn a human body completely to ash. And crematorium staff told jenny that it would be virtually impossible to burn a human body completely to ash even in a commercial crematorium crematorium oven at 2000 degrees fahrenheit which to the rest of the world is 1090 degrees celsius well like i said it's 2000 degrees fahrenheit but the house fire would never actually get to that level uh, to that temperature because in a crematorium or cremation oven it's very concentrated yeah. you've got the fire encased in a metal chamber whereas the house wouldn't you know the house would be susceptible to conditions around it yeah and like uh, in in on one hand you've got a purpose-built machine or you know thing oven, oven. <laughs> whatever um that you know has yeah stable conditions and then you've got a house which has all made up of all kinds of different materials and has different you know things that can act as accelerants and so they're going to burn at different rates and and yeah. at different temperatures and and you've got as the house burns down oxygen coming in which and like all kinds of shit which yeah, it's definitely going to change the temperatures. And so, so thinking back to a few weeks before Christmas, a life insurance salesman had visited the solder home, but when he realized that he wasn't going to make a sale, um, the salesman became enraged and threatened the family. He said, quote, your goddamn house is going up in smoke and your children are going to be destroyed you are going to be paid for the dirty remarks you've been making about Mussolini oh my god so this guy threatens to destroy the children burn the house down and then a few weeks later house goes up in smoke children disappear without a trace who could have done it it's just like very um very on the nose, if you will. Yes. Uh, yeah. So we should also point out that um, 
Fayetteville had a, a large and engaged Italian immigrant community, uh, which the Sodders were very much a part of. And George was very vocal in his um, criticism of Italy's fascist leader, Benito Mussolini. And um, this led to him having quite a few arguments with his uh, fellow Italians in Fayetteville. Um, Adding that to the fact that uh, George never really revealed why he left Italy. So there's kind of a, a tension, if you will, between... Yeah, and, and a bit of intrigue around... Yeah. You know. His relationship to his uh, home mm. country. Yeah. and But also, I'm going to put it out there, is being critical of the fascist leader worth having, you, you know, killing someone's kids over? I don't think it is. No, I mean, it seems like an extreme reaction. That or, like, uh, setting someone's house on fire because they don't want to buy your shitty insurance. Yeah. If this guy burns down a house every time he doesn't make a sale, what kind of fucking, like, horror is he leaving in his wake as a traveling salesman? Or is he just such a good salesman that he, like, has never not made a sale? Oh, so he just didn't know what to do with his himself? Mind. He's like... Oh my god, this is brand new. Yeah. Get the matches. <laughs> I fucking so, hope not. <laughs> well, yeah, but maybe he's just like made this, like, oh my god, I'm gonna kill your children, burn your house, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, hang on a minute. That threat didn't work. I have to go through with it now. <laughs> you know, maybe just expecting that they'd come around and be like, hey man, can we have that insurance please? Just so you don't burn a house down. For those studying marketing, this is not a good way to sell your product. No. No. Added to this, while we're talking about the uh, insurance salesman, he was one of the members of the coroner's jury who determined that the fire was accidental. That is... um. A little suspicious, a little, a little weird, a little strangely coincidental. Really, you don't say. Uh, but because the fire was declared to have been caused by faulty wiring, and um, the children's deaths were therefore ruled accidental and never investigated as murders, um, the salesman was never pursued in any way, shape, or form by law enforcement. So there was also a comment made by an electrician shortly before the fire. Um, he was looking for work when he was sent away as the family had just had the uh, wiring checked by the power company. Um, and he told George that the house's electrics would kill his children. Uh, now, at the time, again, this could be you know seen as just a last-ditch attempt to get some work, but after the fire... Um, you know, in hindsight, it could be seen as a threat from the electrician that he would take revenge on George for not giving him work. You know, a lot like our good old buddy, the 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 arson salesman. I mean, insurance salesman. <laughs> and I say that. <laughs> I mean, I know it's like just post-war and everything like that. It's not that long since, you know, the Great Depression and everything like that. But... Do you really have to go around making death threats just to get work? It seems extreme. 
I'm sure that there were other farmhouses that needed some electrical work done. It was the 40s. Shit was, you know, shit was rough in terms of electricity back then, especially in in the uh, countryside, so... Uh, when the family were searching through the rubble, they found what they thought was a pineapple bomb in the remains of the house. What the fuck is a pineapple bomb? It's kind of like a type of grenade. Um, okay. that was And it was used during the Second World War. Mm-hmm. Um, pineapple. Yeah, it's like, it's a grenade and it's kind of shaped almost like a pineapple. It's got like the, kind of like the oval shaped bottom. And then it's got bits that stick up. Oh. Oh. Yes. I've just looked up photos. And... You can see why they get called a pineapple bomb in a way. That one? Yeah. Because, like, grenade, that's what my mind goes to when yeah. you'd say grenade. Yeah, like, you think of, like, a hand grenade. Yeah. Um. No, but... Pineapple. BL3 anti-personnel bomblet. Oh, how cute. It's a bomblet. So, yeah, if you remember, Jenny was woken up in the middle of the night by the sound of something hitting the roof and then rolling down. And so they began to wonder if this pineapple bomb had been thrown at the roof. Yeah, I mean, when when I heard that, you know, she had heard something on the roof, to me that sounds like it was probably some sort of projectile like incendiary device yeah something being thrown to yeah whether it was a bomb or like a molotov cocktail or something yeah like i mean sort of in later years they did contest that the fire started in the attic but because the house was burnt was yeah how could you really tell yeah and also i mean it seems like something started in the attic because by the time the um George and, and Jenny and them woke up, the attic stairs were inaccessible yeah. due to fire, but they could get out of the rest of the house. So with the local authorities refusing to investigate the deaths of his children any further, um, in 1947, George asked the FBI to investigate what he considered a kidnapping. <laughs> this is great. <laughs> Director J. Edgar Hoover personally responded to his letters Although I would like to be of service, he wrote, the matter related appears to be of local character and does not come within the investigative jurisdiction of this bureau. Hoover added that if the local authorities requested the bureau's assistance, he would of course direct agents to assist, but the Fayetteville police and fire departments declined to do so. Yeah, and I know I've read like a few cases where like local or state law enforcement have tried to keep the FBI out. In some ways, you can be like, right, it's it's ego-driven, you know. We don't need outside help. We can do this ourselves. Or it could be, you know, kind of like in the Rachel Nickel case where it's like, nope, we've got this one theory and it's going to pan out and we're going to make sure it pans out. Yeah. See, I um, think that's... And they don't want someone else coming in with fresh ideas, fresh eyes looking at something. Yeah. Um, I think that happens a lot. It's, it's kind of like confirmation bias where it's yeah. like you... You pick a theory, you bet the farm on it, so, so to speak, and um, <laughs> nope, 
Nope, you're not getting away with that one. <laughs> nope. Thought I could just slip it in there. Nope. Um, and and then like, yeah, you don't want someone to say like, hey, actually, have you looked at this thing that you missed and it points you in a totally different direction and it's going to blow up all the work you've just done? Like, I think that's super common in law enforcement because like they don't have the resources, they don't have the time to necessarily, you know want to to go back and redo something when when this sort of new idea comes yeah to fruition so yeah. or of course they could just be corrupt as fuck and not want the inv- the fbi anywhere near that in case they discovered that yeah so with nowhere to turn uh in terms of law enforcement this um solder parents decide to hire a private investigator uh, one C.C. Tinsley. I love that name. That's an awesome name. That's like a proper like 40s, 50s, uh, like film noir yeah. detective name. Yeah, it's very much, it's like, um, like Raymond Chandler-esque. I love it. <laughs> um, so good old C.C. Tinsley made quite a number of discoveries about the case, um, so it was Tinsley who had discovered that the insurance salesman had threatened um, George Sauter and had been a member of the coroner's jury. Um, and yeah, in later years, some people associated with the case would also claim that this salesman was one of, if not the deciding vote on that jury. Yeah, it's a bit suspicious. It's weird. It's weird. It's getting weirder, guys. Just, calm down. Calm down. Working me up. (laughs) (laughs) So, Cece Tinsley also learned of rumors about rumors around Fayetteville that, despite his report to the Sodders that no remains had been found in the ashes, good old uh, Fire Chief Morris had found a heart, which. He later packed into a metal box and secretly buried it. Sure. As one does. Yeah, all the, all the time. Yeah. Morris had apparently confessed this to a local minister who confirmed it to George Sodder and Cece Tinsley. Aren't the ministers not supposed to tell people what you confessed? Well, this is why you just don't go to church. <laughs> you just don't confess to anything. Yeah, don't, don't attend your weekly confessional, children. Your minister will tell your friends about that heart you buried in a metal box. The uh, minister in Fayetteville uh, agreed to show George Sodder and Cece Tinsley where uh, Fire Chief Morris had buried this heart. And they dug it up. And they took what they found inside to a local funeral director who, after examining it, told them it was actually beef liver it was very fresh and i had never been exposed to fire duh my my dad's best friend is a funeral director so now i need to ask him has anybody ever brought you so like brought you a heart and been like is this real can you tell me whose this was please more rumors circulated around fayetteville we'll see that morris morris actually after the after this admitted that the box with the liver had indeed never originated in the fire. Duh, again. He had supposedly 
placed it there in hopes that the sodders would find it and be satisfied that their missing children had indeed died in the fire. So I have a number of questions about this. Yeah. Right. If you die in a fire, who is putting your heart in a box for your parents to find? Right. Like. (laughs) (laughs) This actually wasn't even the top list of questions. This is just something that I've kind of just thought, how did I not think of this before? Yeah, like like if you if 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 you really wanted uh these parents to believe, hey, this is one of my f- five children's hearts. First of all, get a heart. Don't cheap out and get a liver. Yeah. I mean, if you've gone to the extent of getting beef liver, why not go to a local slaughterhouse and get a heart? Well, and also like beef things, beef organs are huge. I'm sorry, but I'm I don't care if it's 1945 or whatever. No one's going to mistake a beef liver for a human heart of a small child. And yeah. like I, I, if you're trying to sell people the idea that bones have been completely obliterated by the heat of this fire, but this magical heart box is totally fine yeah like what the fuck are you what are you smoking fire chief morris (laughs) yeah i mean that was like my main question was how does this heart remain completely intact when the rest of the bodies have supposedly been completely incinerated yeah no like bananas Mm. or liver And, you know, why... My other question is, why was Fire Chief Morris... Why One, why did he think the family would believe it? And why is he so desperate for them to believe it and drop the case? It's weird. Like, yeah. At, at this point, like, why is he even mucking around with it at all? Because from, from you know, his, from the official point of view, the case is closed. Yeah. The, the inquest is done. And, like, he... The- he doesn't have to comment on it anymore. Yeah, he can just be like, uh, "Look, this is what we this is what we told you guys." Yeah, here's the death certificates. Here's, you know, everything else. Just leave it. Yeah, like don't weirdly torment these poor people with your organ boxes. <laughs> Fucking strange. Yeah, it's it's just bad. Um. Tinsley also found an account from a local bus driver who had been passing through Fayetteville on Christmas Eve. Um, And this bus driver said he'd seen what looked like someone throwing, quote, balls of fire at the solder home. But it is unclear whether or not the bus driver reported this at the time or was just something Tinsley found from, you know, just asking around in Fayetteville. Mm Mm-hmm. And also turns out that there had been reportings, reports of sightings of the missing Sodder children. And even though the case was real an accident, members of the public had been reporting sightings since the day after the fire. Well, that's suspicious. Really? Yeah. Um, there were reports of Fayetteville residents who either knew or at least knew of the Sodder family. Um, some even reported seeing the children being driven away in the early hours of Christmas Day, 1945, while the house was still burning. Uh, A woman who ran a rest stop about an hour away from Fayetteville reported seeing the five children the morning after the fire. 
She said she had served them breakfast and that they were accompanied by four adults who were, quote, all of Italian extraction. Uh, this woman also claimed that she tried to talk to the children, you know, as a lot of servers do. Yeah. Asking how you are, that kind of thing. But the adults with the children were very sort of cold and standoffish towards her and began speaking in Italian. So she just served them the food and left them to it because the children didn't seem upset or in any kind of distress. So she wasn't suspicious. You know, it was just, okay, it's a family who really don't want anyone talking to them. So Yeah, and the children spoke Italian, correct? I Well, I'm assuming. I think they, I, I read that they did. Yeah, this woman's like, yeah, they're they're speaking Italian, and and the children weren't like, oh, that's weird. Why why are you talking to me in Italian? Yeah, like they were they were engaging in the conversation with these people, but like, so it's a yeah. I can definitely see just sort of like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. that like it's a little weird, but going about your day kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, and she didn't think anything of it. Until she saw the photos of the five Sada children in the news. Mm-hmm. Um, the family had flyers printed up with pictures of the children offering a $5,000 reward, which was soon doubled to $10,000. Um, and they were looking for information that would have settled the case for even one of the children. Um, in 1952, they put up a billboard at the site of the house it would in time become a landmark for traffic traveling through Fayetteville on U.S. Route 19 also known as West Virginia Route 16 Uh, they later put up a second billboard along uh, Route 60 near Anstead with the same information I just decided to quickly google what $10,000 would be worth today a lot so $10,000 in 1945 is the equivalent of $145,317.22. Hot damn, Mr. Sauter, I got some information for you. <laughs> the billboard would remain on the site, or, well, the former site of the Sauter home, for almost 40 years. And with the exception of the second eldest son, John, the family would never give up hope of finding their five missing children. John, however, believed that the family should accept what happened and continue with their lives. But if you've lost five children, if you've lost any child, when do you give up? How, like, how do you give up? Yeah, especially when it's... When there's so much suspicion around, so many suspicious circumstances. Yeah. Um, George Sauter died in 1969, uh, still desperately searching for answers, um regarding the fate of his children and following his death his widow jenny only wore black until her her death in 1989 it's very queen victoria it is up until his death george Sauter traveled around the u.s chasing leads on his missing children usually 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 he went to all these different places let me start again up until his death george Sauter traveled across the u.s chasing leads on his missing children usually following up on tips from members of the public and on one occasion he saw a photo in a newspaper of a schoolgirl 
in New York City, and he drove up to New York and tracked the family down, but they refused to allow him to see the child. Which I can kind of understand, you know, if, <laughs> you know, some strange man turns up on your doorstep asking to see your young daughter because he thinks she might be his daughter who was kidnapped. And if you're completely innocent, you'd be like, get to fuck. Yeah. Like, uh, no, crazy man, go home or just go somewhere that's not here. Yeah. yeah. It'd be jarring. Yeah. But also, if you're guilty and you did kidnap someone's child... Or were involved in the kidnapping of five children and the arson of a family home. You wouldn't ever want the real parents anywhere near you, would you? No. So so basically... So uh, it's not an indication of guilt. Basically, these people had the right reaction no matter what. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So one of the most significant leads that the family got was a photo they received in the mail, which had been postmarked in Central City, Kentucky in 1967, 22 years after the fire. The photo was of a young man in his late 20s, early 30s. Um, The man in the photo looked similar to Louis Sauter, who was only nine years old at the time of the fire. And on the back of the photo was written, Louis Sauter... I love brother Frankie. Ill lil boys, or possibly lil boys, and A90132 or 35. Which is confusing yeah. to me. Anyhow. Yeah. Understandably, this did give the family hope that their children could still be alive and they added this photo to the billboards mm-hmm. and George and Jenny framed the photo above their fireplace. That's so sad. Yeah, and weird as well. I can under- completely understand why they did it, but I also find it a bit strange. <laughs> um, so following this, they quickly hired a PI to go to Kentucky and look for the man in the photo and find out if it was in fact their missing son. But this PI was, he was no C.C. Tinsley. And he just took their money and was never seen or heard from again. No, like... Make of that what you will. Did he take the money and run or did someone get to him? Oh. I just assumed he stole the money. But like... Yeah, but if someone, you know, if these five children have gone, have been kidnapped and 20 years later someone might uncover the truth... And you were the kidnapper or part of the kidnap plan, you'd want to stop the truth coming out, wouldn't you? Yeah, probably. But also, if you were the kidnapper and it was 22 years later, you might be dead. So. Yeah. I think this guy just yeah. took the money and run. But yeah. Others do believe that uh, something happened to him and he was disappeared by the mob. This is why you always call on CC Tinsley, guys. Yeah. He is reliable. And the mob can't get him. Oh, no. See, now I just want to know about C.C. Tinsley. Yeah, well, I'm sorry I can't find much on the internet. Well. Uh, this is a whole separate episode. I'm just going to go look and okay. just spend some time. You can become his official biographer. Ooh, cool. What What would the um, biography title be? Come see, see the life of C.C. No, Tinsley. No, I'm hey, not even letting you finish hey, that. Hey. <laughs> No, yes. no, no. 
The surviving Sauter siblings and their own children have continued to publicize the case and investigate leads. They, along with older Fayetteville residents, have theorized that the Sicilian Mafia was trying to extort money from George Sauter, and the children may have been taken by someone who knew about the planned arson and said they would be safe if they left the house. They were possibly taken back to Italy. Um, and if the children had survived all those years and were aware that their parents and siblings had survived too, the family believes they may have avoided contact in order to keep them safe. Uh, I think that's a bit of a weak uh, that, argument. Like I was, I was kind of up, I was with them up to like that point, and then the idea that they wouldn't contact them at all over all of the intervening years that seems a little suspicious to me yeah and i think that theory relies on someone knowing something about the family having mob connections yeah because otherwise why would you assume that in the first place yeah sylvia is the only living member of the sort of family who survived the fire and she still refuses to give up her impact her parents' investigation into what happened to her siblings, who she has not seen since she was two years old. Jeez. So she's now what, 70, 76, 77? Yeah. Uh, but after almost 70, after 74 years, we're still no closer to knowing the truth about what happened to Maurice, Martha, Louis, Jenny Jr., or Betty. So, what do you think about this one? Uh, those children were not in that house when the fire was set. No, I don't think they were. Hundred percent were not. I don't know where the fuck they are. Like, but they weren't in there. Yeah, that they couldn't have been burned to ash. No. But um, yeah, beyond that, I'm kind of baffled because if it was like a kidnapping thing, then why not? Well, if you kidnap someone, you usually kidnap for ransom. Yeah, you kidnap or to you... get something out of it, not just to get some ch- children unless, but like, um, I don't but know. then actually having said that, people do like kidnap to order, you know, yes. people who can't, you know, families who can't have kids and can't adopt it's not it's not unknown it's not unheard of and also then you've got you know human trafficking kind of stuff as well yeah i don't know i don't know i don't i don't i don't i don't know what to think about it but they were not disintegrated into nothing no for fucking sure yeah but they say why why kidnap them and then you know there's no ransom there's no nothing there's no yeah like follow-up or anything and if you're gonna kidnap them and then kill them what was the point in kidnapping them in the first place yeah because you could have just let them left them in the house yeah so but like how so the oldest kid who supposedly was in the fire was uh maurice maurice at 14 14. yeah see like that's not even like the the cynic in me could maybe even see oh if there was like one of the kids was like 18 years old and and just sort of snapped and rounded up 
five of his four of his siblings and and then you know took them out and 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 then burned down the house with everyone else like but he's 14 and i don't think that's what happened and (laughs) yeah i'm suspicious of that theory yeah like and and i don't think i've seen that theory anywhere you know come to me for all your esoteric theories but um But yeah, they they weren't in that house. No, there's no way. Because they couldn't have been cremated in a house fire in only an hour. No. And there'd be absolutely no trace whatsoever. No. So, yeah. We have achieved absolutely nothing. Nope. It's still a mystery. Well, yeah. I, yeah. It's, I'm just kind of... I'm just kind of baffled by this one. Yeah. Um, so, you know, let us know what you all think um, about the Sodder children. Did they die in the fire? Were they kidnapped? Was it the mob? You know, let us know. Tell us on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, we want to hear everyone else's crazy theories, too. And thank you for listening, and we'll see you all on social media. Yeah, thanks so much. Okay, bye. Bye.